Welcome to another episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. The ultimate peak in the excellence of podcasting is back at you again. It's another Monday, another week has transpired. The world seems crazy, but this is a little break from that. So what's going on with you? Uh, not much. So I know that what you've done over there, because you do these very cool, successful, very well put together live streams from your stewed. I haven't quite done this yet. I haven't I haven't gotten hip to 2022. But you have that light ring that makes you look good, I guess. Right? You have one of those light rings? I have a giant, like it looks like a giant uh, rectangle of light. Is it weird to sit in front of that for an hour? I mean, is it weird to undergo liposuction? If you haven't previously scheduled the procedure, yes, it would be weird. If you oh. if you woke up in a bathtub and you know Tijuana, and uh, your fat was being harvested by fat harvesters, that would be weird. Yeah, that would suck. But you get used to anything. That's why they invented the term Stockholm syndrome because you can get used to anything. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about uh, humans is that we're very adaptable. But at this point. I've adapted to who I am now. And, uh, and who are you now? Oh, I'm the dude that's not recording. God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Welcome to yet another wonderful episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. Excellence in podcasting since 2000. When did we start this? 2013? Well, officially we started in 2013, but right. we actually began podcasting back in the 1800s um, when we first were traveling across the continental United States, charting uh, the area for the U.S. Geological Society. Some people called it the gold rush. Not us, though. Well, we called it the gold hush because we were like, shh, listen. Listen to the sounds of nature while we cartograph it. And they did. Yeah, they did. Dude, most of them died. Yeah, they all died. (laughs) We're the only ones alive from that era. I know. How did we survive this long? I don't know. It's weird. It's like one of those trees where, like, how can this tree still be alive? And it's a mystery, but no scientist can solve it. You can bring in shamans and magic men. Right. They have ideas, but are they worthwhile to listen to them? Right. You could take little samples of the tree and try to measure it, put it in a tube, in a lab. But it won't net you any results that are practically useful. You can burn a crayon and then sniff the sniff the fumes and then uh, say and that have. you've seen a vision. Right. But again, where are you going to get with that? It's just one man's opinion. You can carve a pentagram into a dirt field in an old Indian burial ground. And you can recite some prayers from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And yeah, some phantoms may arrive. They may haunt your family for generations to come. But it won't give you any useful information about why the tree stands hundreds of years later. Dude, you could open up a Christian bookstore and really curate it to the best of your ability to stuff that you really think matters and then read all that information and still, where are you at? You could sit down at a beautiful Yamaha grand piano, play every key 26,000 times, all the ivory ones, all the other ones. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, you could go through your daughter's sock drawer and get rid of all the socks that only have one 
sock and don't have the other pair and then put them all together so that they're nice neatly stacked and still would you know why we're still alive you could take a butterfly collection that you found at a goodwill that's a hundred years old take it to a soothsayer do some incantations some luciferian magic bring them all back to life they can't tell you why so you could take your shirt off at a party and you could write i am the son of sam in jelly all over your chest and tell people that um you your butthole uh talks to you at night while you're sleeping and again where would you be you could go up to that guy at the party scoop some of the jelly off of his left pectoral with your index finger put it on your sammy sam and say thanks for the completing my peanut butter sandwich and then you can tell him that when his butthole is talking to him that's called farting dude you could invent a new form of transportation that has nothing to do with air sea or land and it would just get you from one place to the other, similar to the way they used to do it in Star Trek. And then people would say, well, you're a billionaire now. And you would say, of course I am. And then would that person know? No. No, because it's unknowable. It's unknowable. I think it's just sheer will and fortitude and integrity. I mean, that has a lot to do with it. And clean living. Clean living. That ain't no joke. Dude, that ain't no joke. Some people think it's easy. Clean living. <laughs> well, they hadn't tried it. And they, if they have tried it, they gave up real quick. Well, what they thought was clean living was really dirty living. <laughs> right. One man's clean living is another man's trash living. As the great poets said millennia ago. And speaking of that, we got some emails here. Let's let's check into some of these emails. Yeah, I've been waiting. You can write in bobandclint at gmail.com and we will read these on the podcast and then it will live forever under God's green earth for as long as... Human beings are interested in audio technology. This is from Craig Soderberg, and he is shedding some light on the Richard Ashcroft bittersweet symphony debacle. He says, hey there, guys. Bob implied that the Verb tried to pull a fast one with the bittersweet symphony sample, but they had actually gotten the rights from the record company that recorded the symphonic Stones-inspired version. It's not even a music version, just an instrumental that was loosely based on the song The Last Time, which the Stones openly admit that they even kind of stole from the staple singers. He says, I think the band actually thought they had already done the right thing. Apparently, they didn't get permission from the actual copyright owner of the Stones song the last time, which was Alan Klein, a Stones former manager. Klein only got involved once the song started doing well, so he sued for 100% of the song, and Jagger and Richards ended up getting full writing credit for Bittersweet Symphony, even though they hadn't written a word or any music. The best part of the story, even though it took 20 years, is that Jagger and Richards signed over 100% of their publishing back to the Verve. I think they believed it was a scumbag move by Klein, who has always been known as a scumbag. He says, I know it's just a side note on one of many copyright lawsuits, but I find the details on this one extra interesting from a musician's standpoint. Well, I didn't know any of those details, so that's pretty interesting. I knew the whole story, uh, but when I think of Alan Klein, I think there's a chill guy. That guy's pretty chill. <laughs> well, I may be getting this wrong, and maybe Craig knows, but Alan Klein is a really big part of one of the main fractures of the Beatles because he was kind of a shady dude, and I believe it was John wanted him to manage the Beatles, but the other guys didn't. So ended up being a problem. I mean, dude, you've worked with lots of different managers. It's How would you... What do you think... Let me think of how to put this because me as a side guy work, I've worked with so many different artists. So I have interfaced with many managers. I mean, maybe 50, 75. I don't know. It is really hard to find a manager who does a great job. What would you say? 
How would you describe a manager who's great at his job? Well, I think you need somebody who's passionate about it, like who really wants to prove themselves as a manager. I think that's the first and foremost thing. It's like any anything, any endeavor, whatever it is. If you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a guitar player, if you want to be a teacher, the people that really want to excel and and show the world that they're really good at what they do, they'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. So like, and as it is with every profession, that's 1% or maybe less than 1%. And the rest are all a bunch of hacks who are just doing as little as they can to fucking float. So, um, you know, every once in a while you'll meet somebody like, uh, who is Elvis? Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, you'll meet somebody like that. And their goal is just to be the number one stunner. And, uh, and then you got Elvis, you know? Right. So I've worked with a lot of great people that are managers. Uh, I mean, my first manager as a solo artist was Doc McGee, who arguably you know, in the eighties was one of the greatest managers of all times. He managed John Bon Jovi, uh, Poison, Skid Row, Motley Crue, did I say Scorpions? All of those at the same time, he was the manager of all those groups. And he managed them from obscurity until they were super famous. And Kiss. I mean, and, he came in with Kiss but, later, but. Well, he came in with Kiss. He, he famously came in with Kiss when they weren't wearing makeup. And he said, hey, Let's put the makeup back on right. and go out and make bags of money. And that's what they did. Right. And, you know, with me, uh, you know, I don't know how much he liked me and he liked the idea of managing me. And he, I mean, it was cool having him as a manager and I liked him. But at that point, you know, he was golfing. He liked to golf and then he had a, a, a day-to-day person kind of do the, do all the, nitty you know the stuff yeah i was going to explain that to the audience so usually a guy like doc mcgee he's like a big picture guy who got who probably does a lot of golfing and enjoying his money well he's a big he's a big picture guy now but he wasn't in the 80s in the 80s i guarantee he was busting his butt yes correct now with kiss he's at every gig it's not like he's staying home and pounding checks he's at every gig well they're his biggest yeah they're his biggest client and so he's he's definitely working um in a way with that band that he wasn't necessarily working with me. But when I was on tour with the Dixie chicks, uh, that manager was like, I would watch what he did. And I was like, wow, this is, this is the next level. And the other guy that's an incredible manager, uh, was Dave Matthews. Their, their manager, Corin Capshaw, Corin Capshaw, who ended up, you know, becoming a, you know, opening this giant management company. Red Light. Um, yeah, it's called Red Light Management. So, I mean, you've got people like that. It's not just the manager either. It's it's really a combination of the manager and the artist. Like, I've always just been like, well, I've never, until the last couple years with the manager I have now, I've never been involved in my career. I'm like, oh, they'll take care of it. I'm just going to do my thing and they'll do their thing. But the people that are really successful are the ones who work with their manager. And, and the other thing I think that's really important, some people really 
will do anything it takes to become famous. Like they don't give a fuck about anybody. They don't give a fuck about anybody. They'll like, oh, I got to lose this person that I play with because they're not good and it's going to impede me becoming successful. They're bye bye. But I've never been that way. I've always been like, I want to do exactly what I want to do. I want to have a good time. I want to be a good person. I want to make the music that I want to make. And if I become successful, that's great. I mean, I really want to be more successful than I am, but I'm not going to like, I'm not going to like fuck people over or I don't know. You know what I mean? I think also another aspect of that, that I've seen a lot is that I just don't think would work for you is just being beholden to somebody who would want to control the, the creative aspect of what you do. I just, yeah, there are, I mean, there, there are, there are, you know, I'm putting air quotes. There are artists who will, who will basically say to the powers that be, I will literally do whatever you say. Right. And they'll do it. And that's fine. And it sometimes works, but there's nothing interesting about it artistic from an artistic perspective. And I don't think even think those artists last very long because ultimately you have to have something to say. The way, the way you've structured your career is you can kind of do whatever you want. No, I do whatever I want. You do whatever you want. So, I, I mean, mean, that's kind of the dream artistically. I mean, I really do have, if I could have picked out a career like if i could have said well what's the best what's the what's the best thing you could possibly do as an artist it would be exactly what i'm doing now i'm always afraid that i'm not going to be able to maintain a career throughout the rest of my life unless i become more famous so that's my only worry but the fact that i can i have my anonymity i can go anywhere and people aren't going to bug me i'm not a big star but I make enough money to pay my bills and provide for my family. And I get to do what I love, which is perform for people and write music, whatever music I want to write and perform whatever I want to perform uh, without having to necessarily play anything except for what I want to play. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Most people don't have that. Most people give up their, their life, you know, like I, I, I mean, like I want to be, I want to play stadiums like Bruce Springsteen, but I, I couldn't imagine how terrible it would be to have to be Bruce Springsteen. I don't think there's a lot of chill in his world. No, he can't go to the store. He can't just do anything without people like going crazy if they see him. There's a pretty famous story that I believe is actually true. You can, you can find it. Uh, Bob Dylan, I guess Bob Dylan is mildly obsessed with normal people just because he hasn't been a normal person. Well, he's not, not a normal person, but in terms of celebrity. And there's a story that he was in playing some like, I don't know, some city in Ohio. And he was in this suburban neighborhood. It was raining. And the police were called because <laughs> he was just looking in the windows of these houses into normal people's homes. And someone in one of these homes called the police because they thought it was a fucking weirdo. Police come and pick him up and they're like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm Bob Dylan. And they're like, oh, okay, Bob Dylan. Where can we, you know, where's home for you? Where can we take you? And he's like, oh, the, my buses are at whatever, the whatever arena. And so the cops sort of been musically taken and it turned out it was Bob Dylan. His tour manager's like, we've been looking for him everywhere. And I guess he does that. He goes and just looks in, into normal people's homes which struck, strikes me as sad. 
There's something you lose. There's something you pay. You know, nothing's free. You give up something to be that. And I think you get to someone like Bob Dylan's age or whatever, and you maybe start to wonder if it was worth it. You start to fantasize about just being a normal person. Or you just want to look in people's windows. Dude, as soon as you started saying it, I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want to look in people's windows. Not because what, not because I'm fascinated with normal people. Just I just want to see what they... like. I would love a show where people just go into people's houses and just show people's houses just to see what they, their life's like. Yeah. But not like a show where like they fixed up the house or anything like that, but just, just a show where you just like go, Hey, you know, you just find somebody on their way home. You go, Hey, can we just go film your house? You can't clean it up. You can't do anything. And then they just go and you see what people live like. See, it's interesting that you, want want to do that before i did music professionally my my full-time job is i worked for this nonprofit organization that delivered really expensive high-tech vision equipment for visually impaired children and part of my job was like i knew all the gear i helped find the kids that needed it we were it was a nonprofit, so all of our funding came from the state we would find these kids and we'd be able to give out like 50 of these a year and i would travel all through alabama delivering these to families it was an amazing job i loved it but I often went into these people's homes and, you know, it wasn't super pleasant most of the time. But these also were like kind of low income families. But I also had a job when I was in high school, like delivering newspapers. And I saw a lot of inside of people's house. I just my idea about people in in mass. I like people. I believe in human beings. But I feel like in people's secret lives and secret hearts, they're I don't think I want to see any of that. Now, maybe I'm projecting because my secret life is probably unutterably something I would be mortified for people to see or something. But I imagine people I imagine people farting and picking their nose and wiping their butts without washing their hands and hitting their wives and children and vegging out all day and being lazy. I just imagine the seven deadly sins. And uh, I don't want to see that. I don't know, man. I would, I, I would be fascinated. By what it fascinates it. you about it? I don't know. Just because every, like, I just think of like, there's billions of people, and they're all like have their own little, their little ant colony that they live in, and I just think it, I just find it interesting, like what they have on their walls and what. I mean, I don't want to interact with the people. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to like. <laughs> I don't, I don't, but like the show like Hoarders, where you go into these hoarders' houses. Oh, I oh, love man. that show. Well, I need to send you this YouTube channel that we've all been watching as a family. It's this chick in Norway. I'm not going to try to pronounce her name, but she basically deep cleans people's houses for them for free. And these, she obviously, it's a YouTube channel that she makes money off the ad revenue. So she finds these really, really fucked up places oh that's such a good idea and it's so comforting dude and she's such a pleasant she has a really cute accent she's a really positive like i don't mean cute like physically she's just a very cute person she's kind of an adorable sweet person and she does it for free she obviously is making money off her youtube channel but there's something very comforting about it she uses the same products i'll send it to you send me that link but some of these places dude i mean like it's kind of like hoarders where you hoarders is tough because I think they, they always have the people who live there are always involved and they always like, I think really exploit the mental issues of hoarding. And they always like sort of pretend that they throw like a TV therapist at them for a week. And you just know that like six months later, this house is going to be super fucked up again because whatever caused that problem 
it, the root issue remain. They can't solve that problem. This chick on her YouTube channel, the people who live there, you never see them. They're gone. They can't think, you know, they're not a part of it, which I like. But you do sit there and wonder. I mean, when you see a bedroom that's basically every square inch of it is covered in garbage and pizza boxes and like maggots and food. And that's their bed. Like they have to I pull know. out, they have to pull out 20 bags of garbage just to get down to where the bed is. And it's not like these people have been like living somewhere else. That's where they live. Dude, you know, Adam Temple's a hoarder. <laughs> yeah, you've told me. About and it. I would go over to his house and I was just like, what? It, I, like I'd never, I never seen anything like it. Cause I, it was before I was watching hoarders. I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I'd be like, what's going on? Like, I didn't understand it. It just <laughs> didn't, didn't make any clean sense. It? Didn't you help him clean it once? Or didn't he clean it one time? He cleaned it one time, but I, th- or I think he was dating a chick who came over and helped him clean it. But I don't think hoarders recognize what they're living in. Like, they don't... No. They don't really see it. You don't really see your environment anyways, no matter what your environment is, whether it's clean or hoarders. As soon as you start living in an environment, you... You just memorize everything and then you don't even see it. Like you, it's like, you, yeah. Until it's somebody like comes knowing, over. Yeah. And then you see it through their eyes and it's like not knowing what your house smells like or what you like, what your smell is. By yeah. the way, here's some good news for the IOK community. If Adam Temple can have a girlfriend and bring her to the hoarding house, you can have a girlfriend and you know, probably not even a hoarder. But I, dude, I had the same thing. My one of my best friends who lived two doors down from me growing up that his mom was a hoarder and we didn't know what that was. There weren't any fucking TV shows about it. He would just never let us into his house. And I remember one day, like I kind of fought my way through cause it kind of became a thing. We could never go to his house. Right. We were always at my house. And you know, I remember pushing the door open and there was literally just a walkway through his like house and like garbage. It was just like garbage and shit just up to like above our heads. Yeah. And they just had a path from like, Door to couch to kitchen to upstairs. Right. And he did. It makes me sad to think about now. And actually him and his brother had like kind of troubled, strange lives. But and I don't know how much of that had to do with it. But I remember as a kid just trying to process it, probably like you when you saw Adam's place, like, wait a minute. Like, what the fuck is going on here? What is all this? Well, I was a full grown adult when I came across it. I, but and I still didn't know what it was. I was just like. How can you live like this? And he is—he had the same thing. There was just like a little path, like a. And when I say a little path, I'm not talking like a foot. I'm talking about literally like a two-inch path that would like a. And it was like a like if somebody had piled snow and then just carved out like a little two-inch path through the snow and then, you know, go go up and in, in on both sides. Yeah, and it, and it was garbage and clothes and stuff, and he would buy things and it, cans, cigarette butts. He was making a lot of money at the time, so he'd have thousands of dollars in cash laying there with like cigarette butts and old, you know, beer cans that were empty and food cartons and empty bags the food was in and rats he had rats that were like you could see like you would walk in and you would see you'd see some motion in the corner of your eye and you'd look and it'd be a rat and i'm like what is how are you can how can you sleep in here but he here's what he did do drank all the time and did a lot of drugs so 
he was out, you know, he's out of it. Right. I guess and that's he, how you do it. And I think he grew up, his mom is mentally ill. So he grew up, I think he grew up kind of in the wilds, like on a commune or something. And he just didn't, he just doesn't know. I know, but it's so strange. I just, he doesn't know what's right. I know, but I, and I, I, I know people like that. Like they, they just do what their model was. Like if their life, if their childhood was chaos, they just, they create chaos because that's what love is. I have a friend who has one of the worst moms that I've ever heard of in my life. And he married a woman like that. Sure. And he became his dad. His wife is now his mommy and she treats him the way, exactly the way his mom did. And like, they don't even have sex. Like there's no physical, like he, it's just basically another mommy who's mean to him. And I guess I just, I never went looking for my mom in my marriage. I, I really, unless I have some major blind spots, I mean, I've created my own messes for my family, my own chaos, but it doesn't really look anything like what I grew up in. Like, I just wanted to get away from it so bad. So it's hard for me to understand those people who they just created the world they created when they had the freedom and the tools they just created. It's like that movie, that Schenectady New York movie where he makes like a the playwright who makes like a model of his like how the city he grew up in and then he lives in it. And do you ever see that movie, that Philip Seymour Hoffman film? Uh-uh. It's Charlie Kaufman. It's called Schenectady New York. Dude, you you would like that movie. It's really fucking good. Yeah, I've heard I've had it recommended. Maybe you've recommended it to me. Well, I dude, I'm aware of all that. And I recreate my childhood all the time, too. I mean, do you? I, of course. Dude, I mean, I tried as an adult to date somebody who wasn't like uh, some weird combination of my parents. And I I would meet these women and they were funny and they were smart and sexy. And, and after a month or two, once I realized, oh, they're not, they don't have these same problems that my parents had, all the passion went out of the relationship. And then it was like, I'm not feeling anything. And only... Women who who show some kind of of the same qualities that my parents have, and they're not exactly like my parents. You know, maybe it's like maybe they're maybe they have anger issues, maybe they have uh, control issues, maybe they're codependent, maybe they're slightly you know they have alcoholism, you know, whatever it is. If they don't display some thing like that um i'm out like it doesn't doesn't do anything for me now i don't know what your relationship is with your mom what's your relationship like with your mom Mm, it's good i mean it's it's fine and what's your mom like she's cool um she's pretty level-headed she had a bunch of you know she had us when she was very young she had to work really hard in her early 20s to make our life work and my, some of my earliest memories are of her dating. So like strange men being around, but ne- it never really being a problem. She pretty soon after married my stepdad, who I always kind of liked until they divorced. And that was kind of ugly, but he never hurt us or anything. Um, she's kind of a, she likes to please people. She likes to make sure everyone's comfortable. And I don't know. I, you Dude, know, I, I mean, that, that, it sounds like there's some similarities between her and your wife. Yeah, but I would say they're pretty vague in that I wanted to marry someone who was loving and stable. You know what I mean? 
I'm also kind of a fool, like a fool for love in the sense that I don't know, man. I mean, I, me and Isabel met. I always really liked her. And then we couldn't date because we were seeing other people. And then I met this other girl and I married her. And I really liked her. And then when that didn't work out, me and Isabel got together. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I really liked this girl before. And then I married her. And, you know, like we joke all the time where I'm like, man, I wouldn't if something happened and we decided to split up. I'm like, man, I, I would never do this again. And my wife's like, yeah, you would. And she's right. I probably would. Of course you would. Just, I would just marry the next person that I liked and that wanted to marry. I, I just, I love women and I love women who love me. And I, I guess that's always going to be sort of a drug for me. Well, again, I mean, that was, isn't that your mom? Your mom always loves you. Yeah. But that's, that's on the fairly normal side of, a I know son relationship. Well, I not dude. I, I, one of my best friends, his mom is a real complicated, horrible person mm-hmm. and can't emotionally connect with her son at all. And he's going to die alone because hmm. he's only interested in women who don't want to, don't want to love him. Can't connect with him. Any woman who is that way, who doesn't show any, a sign of caring about him he gets infatuated over and if they make the mistake of getting into a relationship with him and start to like him he immediately is out so like i i think it's a normal thing you can't it doesn't matter even how self-aware you are just whatever you learned in those first three or four years of your life Mm -hmm. as to what love is that's always going to be what you think love is. And if you don't see that or feel it in some degree, you're like, "Ah, I'm not really feeling it. And I'm telling you, I was in healthy relationships with women who I really admired, who I thought were really attractive, admired. They were funny, smart. And I was not, I wasn't feeling love. I wasn't feeling that passion. And then, my wife and my ex-wife and other women that I've dated that were the loves of my life, they were all very complicated, not easy. They all had different things that reminded me of, of my, either my dad or my mom or a combination of them. My ex-wife, if you look at a picture of my mom when she was 19 or 20 or 23 when I was, I think she was 23 when I was born. If you look at a picture of her when she was 23 and my ex-wife when she was 23, you would not be able to tell the two apart. (laughs) Jeez. Well, you know, it's been written about, I mean, yeah, your mother is the first woman who loved you and obviously the, the Oedipal implications. It's obviously something that has been deeply ingrained into the, the human experience, the confusion, the, obsession with breasts and you know that's where your first nourishment's from and you know that's your mom and your mom straddling a line between the woman who loved you the most took care of you also like sexual ideation anyway this has been love line with clinton bob write in uh, bob and clint at gmail.com and let us know <laughs> when you realize that you were in love with your own mother and uh <laughs> we'll unpack all that in the emails sitch but for now, we do have to skedaddle into the Secret Weekly, which if this was the main episode, God knows what's going to happen in the Secret Weekly. Did you th- do you think that we got 
we got vulnerable in this episode. <laughs> I think the the candy shell was still very much intact. <laughs> I think for sure it is, dude. <laughs> There's no chocolate in any of our hands. No. If anything, maybe a level of the rose color from the candy part. And that's after a lot Faded. of rubbing. That's a lot of rubbing and a lot of sweat. Well, we'll see what happens in the Secret Weekly. Thanks for the support, everyone. Go listen to our other podcasts. You can leave us a review in any way that you're listening to this. A really helpful thing to do is if there's a way for you to share in your little podcast app, you can put it on your socials and tag us in it and uh, help us get more ears on the podcast. Thanks for all the support. By the way, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the letters I-O-K is how you get into the Secret Weekly and where we're going now. And until then, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 